All right, so today I'm excited about starting a brand new teaching series, and this is one of my very favorite things to do. I actually try to do this about once a year, where we will take a few weeks and study a particular Bible character and go deep in their lives. I have found personally that one of my very favorite things to do, and one of the most easily applicable things that we can find in the scriptures, is looking at a man or a woman who is a servant of God and what their life story is and how God uses them in special ways. And today we're starting the, the, the character of Elijah, and it's called Elijah, Bold and Broken. And so this week we're actually studying this particular topic. We're talking about standing alone and standing tall. We're going to talk about that today. And then next week we're going to be talking about training grounds and proving grounds. And it is going to be, I think, a real blessing to you. I hope that you will be involved. If you don't know, it's kind of an interesting dynamic in this way. If you don't know a lot about the story of Elijah, or if you don't necessarily see him as what is called a major prophet, you might not fully grasp how important he is. As a matter of fact, you probably do not realize that at the very last book and the very last chapter and the very last verse of the Old Testament mentions Elijah's name. It's Malachi chapter 4. And this is what we see in Malachi chapter 4. It's up here on the screen. God predicts in Malachi chapter 4, 5, and 6, he says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And so as we look at how important he is, we recognize that literally for about the 400-year period between Malachi chapter 4 and Jesus' birth, all of the Jews have been waiting patiently so that they would see a man in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And so he is an incredibly important figure. And then as you look a little further, you realize that that Elijah that is being spoken of that will come before Jesus comes makes himself known, it is actually John the Baptist. And so we see those two parallels between John the Baptist and Elijah and how they are kind of like kindred spirits. And so in Matthew chapter 16, in that great proclamation that that Peter makes where he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, we see that Jesus speaks about Elijah both in um, chapter 16 and 17 as he speaks about how John the Baptist has come in that spirit. So as we see here in, Eli uh, in Elijah and how important he is, even in Jesus's own words, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I, the son of man, am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say wait for it, Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then as you skip down to chapter 17, the disciples ask Jesus, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah has to come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. And then he goes on and he says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him, but they've done to him everything that they wish. He's speaking about how John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, just like, G, uh, just like God said he would in Malachi. And Jesus says, but they've done everything that they want to do to him. They've beheaded him and they've made him a martyr. But then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist and Elijah are kind of kindred spirits in one. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, hey, 
I'm living in the age of coronavirus. I'm living in cancel culture. I'm living in the midst of all of this stuff that's going on. Our whole world is in the process of changing. How in the world is a story and a, and a lesson about Elijah going to affect me? So here's what I would say to you. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. But first, I'm going to encourage you to do this. I encourage you to go and get this book. It is actually in this Great Lies from God's Word series by Chuck Swindoll or Charles R. Swindoll. It's including David and Job and Paul and Jesus and more. I mean, I've read most all of these books, actually. Esther is a fantastic book. Moses, Elijah, Paul, Job. And then there's a small one. Number eight is fascinating stories of forgotten lives and is just kind of going through the different stories uh, from smaller bit players so to speak in the bible and yet really incredible things and then jesus the ultimate life is the the last volume and this isn't a this is just a fantastic series. It is an incredible series. If you're interested in going deep, and I'm challenging a lot of you to do this, go deep with us over the next couple of weeks. We've got eight weeks. You could easily finish this book in two or three weeks, but even if you want to just read one chapter at a time in preparation for the coming message, it will be a huge blessing. You will learn a lot about Elijah. You will learn a little bit about what God's word says, even when it doesn't necessarily speak as clearly to you, and you'll learn how to study the Bible a little bit more for yourselves. But here are some of the topics that we're going to be covering over the next few weeks. Coming up big in your big moments. I mean, can we identify that that is a need for us? How about this? The lessons that we learn in the midst of a waiting room. I mean, goodness gracious, it feels like everything's been on pause since March. Can I get an amen, right? I mean, are we still in March or is it August yet, right? Who knows? And so here is the truth. Lessons that we can learn from a waiting room, we're going to learn about that in the life of Elijah. What about passing the torch of faith? Man, as I, I was listening to Haley a little earlier, I was thinking about, yeah, I did know her when she was literally, you know, about this tall and seeing how God is being a blessing and how God has used this church body and a lot of you in that to pass the torch of faith and to show what it looks like to serve the Lord. That's important stuff. And we're going to talk about how to be intentional about that over the next few weeks. And what about this dealing with depression? Oh, no, no. If you're a real Christian, you don't get depressed. I'm here to tell you that is not true. That is so untrue. And we're going to see in the life of an incredible man who is incredibly bold and yet at the same time a broken man serving God. And so that's good news for us who are already aware that we're incredibly broken, right? And so these are the topics that Elijah is going to teach us and we're going to learn over the next few weeks. I encourage you, don't miss any. Just be a part of every single week. And uh, it is so, I, I think, so applicable to the things that we're going through. So don't miss this as we kind of move forward here in today's message. Don't miss this. After Solomon, the, the King Solomon that you've heard about in the Old Testament, Israel was divided into two separate nations. As a matter of fact, you might have even heard a little bit of that when Eric was reading the scriptures. In such and such year of king of Israel or king of Judah, this king started reigning in the other nation. The truth of the matter is, is that Judah was a province in the nation of Israel, but for a time and a period, they broke up into two separate nations. It's almost like, you know, the state of Texas seceding from the United States. It's kind of something just like that. And so this is the idea. There were two separate nations. And uh, I want to just tell you something. I don't know if you're seeing it. I can't, 
my spell check broke on my pro presenter, and that's not how you spell the word separate. That's not how you spell the word inspire from last week. It bothers me deeply, but like, let's not pretend that we don't, don't like kind of rely on spell check. Okay. So if it's misspelled up there, you know, Hey, you come and do it for me. If you're incredible spelling. All right, come on now. All right. All right. So in two separate nations, Judah and Israel, the nation of Israel had 19 kings over 200 years. And over that group of 19 kings, guess how many were evil? That's right, all 19. Think about that for a minute. For over 200 years, there have been people that were called God's people going in the wrong direction away from God. And this is where, oh, my daughter, all right, Haley, one more time, you save me. And you actually correct it. Scott, please put that up. It's corrected. It actually says separate nations now. All right. I don't have to mispronounce it. Very good. So over 200 years, 19 different rulers, these people that were called God's people are going in the wrong direction. And this is the stage that Elijah steps onto. Now, very quickly, you can begin to think of Elijah as this mythical figure. And let me just kind of share with you here on this screen, as you begin to look at him as this mythical figure, here's part of why he shines so brightly, why he's so incredibly important. It's at least in part because there's darkness all over the place in the age that he lived in. His foes, King Ahab and his queen named Jezebel. And by the way, you can get away with naming your dog Jezebel, but don't do that to your daughter, okay? Don't do that. Her name has become synonymous. I mean, I can't get away with calling my wife a Jezebel. I can't do that to my daughters. I end up with bruises and lumps and all that stuff, right? You know the name Jezebel means wickedness. It's synonymous. That's who he's dealing with. If you're going to understand Elijah's story, it's happening against the backdrop of 200 years of going in the wrong direction. It's going on against the backdrop of a, a, a man who is an incredibly evil king and his even more evil wife. And so that's how we understand Elijah's story and how we get it. But I want to be very, very clear about how important this is to grasp. Make sure you do not miss this. In James chapter 5, the Bible tells us something very, very important, and it's easy to miss, so I want us to just slow down for a second and make sure that we don't miss what God is actually saying. He says in James chapter 5, verse 50, uh, verse 5, sorry, pardon me, James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, he says these words, Elijah was a human being just as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. But then again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now, you can think that Elijah was some sort of mythical figure, but this is what God's word is making sure that we understand. Elijah was a human being, even as we are, just as we are, is what the word of God is saying. In other words, God is able to do incredible and amazing things through just simple human beings if they will give themselves over to him and to his purposes. But this is our problem. We think that that's for people like Elijah and we can't identify with him. The truth is, is that he is just like we are. We are just like he is. And God is able to take that clay and make something incredible and beautiful out of it if we let ourselves be used and shaped according to what God 
God is doing. So very quickly, let's talk about a couple of something to learn. And there's some important background that you and I need to make sure and hear. So I'm going to give you two something to learns today. Here's the first one. Elijah was a man with no lineage or position to approve his claim as a prophet of God. But Elijah was a prototype of an Old Testament prophet that is clearly approved by God. And here's what I mean. If you read that passage or if you listened to Eric reading that passage from 1 Kings chapter 16 and then into verse 17, you can see exactly what it is. And I actually separated it out. I put one in italics and one as just the normal font so you and I could make sure and grasp this. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And now if you look at that passage of scripture, next starts the italics because let me be very clear, you may not think about it, so I tried to draw a very clear line of distinction. This is what we know because of God's insight and God's word. But here is all that they hear in the actual event of happening. Elijah bursts onto the scene and says, I am here to tell you that according to God's word, there will be no dew, no rain until you see my face again. And then he exits stage left. And as he exits stage left, we know what happens. But all they hear in the midst of this long period of disobedience and rebellion against God is basically like one or two sentences from God's prophet. And then he disappears. But guess what also disappears? All of the rain all of the dew, and all of the incredibly important things that happen when there's rain versus when there's not. Everything in an agrarian society, everything in a society based around raising crops and raising cattle and all of the things that were going on in the nation of Israel, it ceases from this point forward and lasts at least three and a half years. There's not a raindrop. There's not a dew drop. It is a famine that is coming and that is being predicted. And we can't miss that or else we miss the power of Elijah as he bursts onto the scene and says, this is what's going to happen. And then off he goes to be protected protected by God, to be prepared by God for the showdown that we'll be talking about soon. But don't miss this fact that in the midst of it all, Elijah is hidden by God and all they've heard is basically one or two sentences. And I promise they are listening when God steps back onto the scene. And so go to the second thing to learn here very quickly. This something to learn number two is that Elijah's name confronts idolatry. In other words, Here's what we know. When Elijah bursts onto the scene and they're like, who's that guy that just said that? His name is Elijah. To us, if we don't speak Hebrew, we probably don't get it. We probably don't see it as a big deal. But let me be very clear. Elijah's name alone confronts idolatry because here is how his name is broken down. The first part of his name is El, which means Lord. Jah, which means Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, the proper name of God, and I, which is a pronoun for I, for my or mine. And so as you put those three pieces together, the name Elijah means my God is Jehovah or the Lord is my God. And so in a time where everybody is seeking after all of these pagan gods and sacrificing to these pagan gods, all in the midst of the nation that God himself has dug out of the people, uh, you know, that were once slaves and, and, and 
refugees in the nation of Egypt and brought them into a land that he called the promised land for them. In the midst of that very land that he gave them, they've turned their back on him and said, we're going to follow after all these nasty idols that have us doing all of these crazy things. And Elijah says, my name is Elijah. That means the Lord is my God. You might not get it, but this is how I feel. This is where I stand. And this is what my name means. God is my God. End of story, end of discussion. And let's not miss this very quickly. Let's not miss this at all in this part here. Elijah confronts Ahab and Jezebel on their God's home turf. Baal and Ashtoreth were supposed to be the gods of rain, fertility, seasons, and crops. So what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that if Elijah says, no rain, No change of season. We're not going to have a rainy season this year. It's going to be nothing but dry. And no fertility out there in the fields. That's not happening anymore. And the crops that you've been relying on, they're going to wither and die. Not because Baal and Ashtoreth are mad, but because God says so. It's the end. It's over. It's finished. And it's done. I'm drawing a line in the sand. And I'm even doing this on the very home turf of these gods that you think are the ones that actually save you. He is calling them out in every single way. He's calling them out and saying, you got to turn back to God, God that is my God. He is saying a ton without saying much at all, if you can identify with it, as long as you know the background and you see it. Now, very quickly, let's just be very clear about this. Elijah is not a man that doesn't face challenges. He's not a man who's just kind of, hey, this is great. This is going to happen. No problem at all. I'm just going to kind of breeze through. And here in about three years after I've been, you know, kicking back somewhere else. No, that's not happening for Elijah. He is in the midst of it all. And he's got challenges that he's facing and that he's facing as he comes out and puts himself squarely on the stage of these evil people's radars. First of all, he lived in Israel's divided kingdom, a time of constant wickedness. We've already talked about that. And let's be very clear. Elijah was a simple man from a small town. If you looked for a guy who other people would respect and believe and hear and say, you know what, that's a guy that's a prophet of God. Elijah wasn't that guy. He didn't fit in any of the neat little boxes. He was the guy who was kind of rough and tumble, a dude from the the fields, so to speak. He didn't come in and say... I'd like to give you a small pronouncement from the Lord today. You know, he was not that kind of prophet. He's like, I'm going to tell you what's happening. This is happening. And until you see my face, no rain. And then whoom, off he goes. He's not there to impress. He's there to communicate God's truth. End of story. End of discussion. But he does not shy back from what God has called him to do, even though he could easily say, well, I'm not qualified for that. I mean, I don't really know how to speak very well, just like Moses said back in the day, right? And so we understand that people have always been giving excuses and reasons that they can't be used of God. I'm, I'm sure that none of you guys have ever used an excuse of why you can't be used of God, right? But the truth is, is that for many of us, for most of us, We're finding reasons not to be faithful to what God has called us to do. And Elijah says, forget all those things. I'm going to just simply do what God's called me to do. And I'm not going to wait for someone else to do it because nobody else really is. And can I just say something? Can I just be honest with you guys? Man, too many people in 2020 who want to claim the name of Christ are waiting for somebody else to act like him and they won't. And I'm here to tell you, man, act like the Lord. 
Be the person who is the one who steps forward first. Be the one who crosses the line instead of waiting for somebody else to do it. You be the one who leads instead of waiting for someone else to do it. And very quickly, the other challenge that I mentioned is that Elijah himself, when he declares that three and a half year problem, that three and a half year drought, that's coming to his home. He's not immune from that. When he makes that declaration, he doesn't know how things are going to be for the rest of the country, but he also knows he doesn't know how it's going to be for him either. It's not like when God says, hey, the country's going to undergo a problem like, I don't know, like a strange virus that's novel or whatever. I mean, I mean I'm just pulling things out of the air here. But, you know, just imagine when we go through difficulties as a country, Christians aren't spared from that. We're supposed to shine in the midst of that, not be pulled away from that. Now, God can intervene at any time that he chooses, but a lot of the time he chooses to let his children go through the same difficulties as their neighbors and friends, but he gives them supernatural strength and ability to come through it. And even if he lets you and I go through the fire, that does not mean that he is not with us. It means it is an opportunity for, you know, rededicating ourselves to God and showing the reason for his belief that we can stand up under such difficult times. So just understand that Elijah is a man who went through the very challenges that he was predicting for everyone else. Now, very quickly, let me just say this. Here's the big idea today. I think if you kneel before God, you can stand against any person or any problem that you might face. I believe with all of my heart that if we find our place at God's feet and we kneel before him in true worship, in true understanding of his position, we grasp that we don't have to fear man or mankind. We don't even have to be afraid of all of those circumstances that we can't get our hands on and can't fully control ourselves. And so we kneel before God, we can stand before any person and any problem, whether it be King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, who will literally be looking to kill Elijah for three and a half years, or the problem that he is going to face next week as we talk about how God supernaturally provides the ravens to come and feed him. And that's why you can see the, the big raven in the background of all of our uh, different things that we put on screen. So just understand, you and I can stand before any person and any problem if we kneel before God first. So what do you do and what do I do when no one stands? Very quickly, let me just make a couple of observations. A lot of times people agree with you, but they've settled for what is cheap and easy. So they let you do the standing and they won't do it with you. They won't join you. It's not because they don't believe like you believe. And we're going to learn more about that in Elijah's case and in his story. But the truth is, is that sometimes people know in their heart of hearts that they want to do certain things, but they won't. And they're going to settle for what is easier and what is cheap. What comes easy for them is not necessarily what God has for them as far as his best. But most of the time, there are many other people that could be inspired, but most of them are waiting for someone to be the one who leads them. We're going to talk a little bit about that over the next couple of weeks, how Elijah calls other people to a different path for them. But let me just say this, even if all of that is true, but it doesn't happen for you, maybe you're like, but Randy, you don't understand. I'm the only one at my job. I'm the only one at my school. I'm the only one in my family that stands for God and cares about God, here's what I would tell you. I would promise you this, and this can be taken to the bank. 
Even if you are standing alone, you are not ever alone. Amen? God is always with you. He desires for you to stand and he will hold you up by his righteous right hand, as his word says, as his word promises for us. And so even if you are standing alone, you are not alone and you can make a difference if you will stand up. Now, very quickly... I want to talk about how we should stand. I, I know this. I know that some of you guys are people who are like, yeah, that's cool. I'm good at that. I'm good at kind of being the one who stands against the tide. Let the waves hit me. I can be bold. And I'm cool with being bold no matter who gets hurt, right? <laughs> okay, well, uh, settle down there, Skippy. Hold on, all right? Let me just talk with you for a second. Here is how you should stand. If you are that person, be that person. But let's talk about you for just a quick second. This is not just about those who struggle to stand. Some of you are willing to stand, but you're not doing it in a way that glorifies God. It seems more like your personality than a personal calling from God. And there's a big difference when you're on the other side looking at that. So here's what you do. Here's how you should stand. You stand with love. That means that God's word tells us that speaking the truth in love is a path to maturity for us and for the hearers around us. So if you're a person who's cool with standing, even when everybody else is going the other way, make sure that you're doing it in love. You speak the truth, but you just speak the truth in love every single time. Because sometimes speaking the truth hurts and wounds and you'll never have that opportunity back. So you Instead, as God's word says, you speak the truth in love. That's from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. And how else should you stand? Secondly, you should stand with humility. God's word warns us that we all have stumbled. We all will stumble, no matter what. This is just true for all of us, no matter who we are. So you have to be humble. I have to be humble. In, second, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, Those of you who are standing, take heed except that you might fall along with those people that are around you falling. And so if you're a person who's willing to stand and take some of those blows and stand against the tide, that's great. Don't change that, but make sure that you are doing that, first of all, in love, and secondly, with humility. Do those two things, and people will be inspired by you rather than uninspired around you, okay? So very quickly, we talk about those things. How should we stand? I got a great quote, and this is so important. If you don't grasp this, you've got to make sure and grasp this. This is a quote that your inner strength is your outer foundation. In other words, your life is going to be built around the things that are going on inside first, and then they flow out. It's not out in, it's in out, okay? And you may be saying, well, I see at the bottom there, the name of the guy who said that is Alan Rufus. Who is that, Randy? And I'm just here to tell you flat out, I have no idea who Alan Rufus is, but he put a tiger next to his quote. I mean, how cool is that, right? So I thought to myself, I don't care who Alan Rufus is. I just know he put a tiger next to his quote. That's beautiful. I'm putting it up there, especially because it's so true, right? Your inner strength is your outer foundation. So let that be a reminder to you. And if any of you guys know who Alan Rufus is, put it in the group chat. Otherwise, don't judge me, Christian people. Okay, here we go. Very quickly. Here is the big question for you and I to answer. We have to ask, how often do we sacrifice our principles just to make peace with other people? How often do you and I make sacrifices of the principles that we have just simply to make peace with other people? 
And I'm going to tell you, it is very important that we, uh, in our world today, we have people who will stand. And we know that it is not always easy to stand. We also understand that for some of us, it's even more difficult because we want to please other people. Now, I got this funny cartoon that I want to show you guys real quick. Uh, Let me put it up here. The many faces of a people pleaser. And uh, it says, if you're happy, this is what you look like. If you're bored, this is what you look like. If you're angry, this is what you look like. Terrified, depressed, dying inside, they're all the same because the only thing that you're going to do is you're going to make sure that everybody thinks everything's okay in every single way, in every single situation, because you sure don't want them to be upset with you in some way. Well, here's the truth. If you are a people pleaser, you got to be very, very careful that you're not going down the wrong road and not leading people along with you. I I ran across an article, and it's here. It's very interesting. This woman named Amy Morin wrote this, and basically underneath her uh, picture there and her name, she says, what mentally strong people don't do. Isn't that an indictment a little bit? What mentally strong people don't do. You don't become a people pleaser. You stand for what is right. You do the right thing in the right situation. And it's so interesting because she says, here's 10 signs that you're a people pleaser. And very quickly, let me give you five of those 10. She says, you pretend to agree with every single person that you come in contact with. You feel responsible for other people's feelings, which you can't control. You never, ever, ever say no You feel uncomfortable just because somebody is angry at you, even if you wouldn't change things for yourself, and you constantly need praise just to feel good. If these are five of the signs that you've just heard from me, and you're like, check, 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 go back and read the other five to make sure that you're not going down this road of trying to please people, because here's what I know. I know that if you're desperate to please people, you will never find it in your heart to please God above them because they're the ones who can call you out. They're the ones who say things to you. They're the ones who talk about you. They're the ones that you fear more than the God who created you for something much more than they want to give, much more than you want to have called out in you. And so you and I've got to be very clear that number one, we please God. That is number one in our, remember what we said? You can face any person and any problem if you kneel before the Lord. But until you do, if you're kneeling at the altar of pleasing everyone else and being a person that, you know, is more concerning to you than God's opinion, then you will never stand against those terrible situations and difficult things that we all encounter. It's just the truth, right? Amen? Can I get an amen here in this house? Amen? All right. Very good. Okay, so very quickly, let me just say this uh, with you. Here is something so important to understand. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I underline the part that I think might be good for you and I to memorize. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Outwardly, we are wasting away, but inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what on, on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And yes, I did share this passage with you guys recently. It is so important and so vital that we understand that God is doing things in our world. If we will partner with him, we will be proud. And if we turn our back on those things and say, somebody else can do that, I promise we will regret that. It is true. 
So why do we stand? Very quickly, I've got three things why we stand and we're gonna hit them quick and keep moving. Here's the first one. If you constantly fade into the background, you're never gonna make an impact. You might influence, but you will not impact. Let's go to the second. Here's the second one right here. You have both power and obligation. God has given you the power. He has also given you the command. You and I follow God and his commands. He's given us the power to stand. And he's also given us the command that we are supposed to stand and be a light in our dark world. Here's the third one very quickly. And it is this. You are responsible to God. And one day, if you refuse to stand for him, rest assured, you will stand before him and tell him why. The truth of the matter is, is that we don't want to talk about it a lot, but there will come a day that we will stand before the Lord and give an account for every deed that's been done in our body. It doesn't mean that we won't make it into heaven, but it does mean that God is going to speak to every one of us about what we did and didn't do. And I believe that many of us are going to have opportunities that we had to speak up for what is right. And we are going to say, this is why I chose not to do it. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be very, very clear and very honest and open. I can't go into it all just because of time and straight up because of embarrassment. But I promise you, I promise you, I already know at least one or two of those things that I'm going to have to look into his eyes and say, this is why. And I'm not looking forward to that. All I can do is rest on the grace of God, which I know has already saved my soul. And yet at the same time, I better take it seriously knowing that I'm going to stand before him and give him an account for the life that he's given me. And I think you and I both need to be reminded of that. All right, very quickly, here is how we apply this message. To grow inner strength, we have to do one of these things. And this is actually, interestingly, from psychology today, it tells you the same exact things. If you're a people pleaser and you want to overcome that, this is how you begin it. And these are some of the very same things that I believe that God's word says. First, we say no to someone or something, especially if it's leading us in the wrong direction or taking up time that we don't have to give to God. We say no to that someone or that something, so we make sure to have room for God. The other way that you can do it is to stand up for your belief, where you can speak up about something that you believe, even if it's unpopular. You stand up and say, well, look, I don't care if you guys agree with me or not. This is how I feel. This is what I believe in my heart of hearts. This is what God has spoken to me. This is what God has done for me in my life. And then I think this is where it all begins. You have to spend time in God's presence. If God is unreal to you, if he is less real to you than all the things that you see on a regular basis, you have to understand that until God becomes more real than your circumstances, at very least more real than you have already had happening in your life, you will not follow him. You will follow the crowd. And because of that, you will not be all that he desires for you to be and all that you can be. I'm going to end in just doing something that I don't normally do. I normally try to read, uh, um, pardon me, I try to share a story. But today I'm going to read a story that actually was reprinted in um, USA Today from the Louisville Courier. Let me just read it with you. I think it's really powerful and I think it will be very important. And I think it applies so perfectly that you can't miss it. So if you'll allow me to read it with you and you know, I got to have my glasses, right? Okay. So officer Galen Henshaw heard a call over the radio. One of his fellow officers was in trouble. There was a crowd of protesters that had surrounded a police cruiser at the base of Clark Memorial Bridge in Louisville. 
That officer that was trapped radioed for help as protesters strobed in blue and red patrol lights, banged on that car hood and on that windshield. Officer Galen Hinshaw was a 4th Division patrol officer, part of the Metro Police Department's special response unit, and he drove as close as he could to be at that scene. He also got out of his cruiser and was immediately surrounded by protesters, some yelling profanities, other balling up their fists. He made his way through the crowd wearing 40 extra pounds of safety gear and holding a baton, wearing a vest, helmet, and body armor. But unfortunately, he was alone. So as the crowd grew, Henshaw detoured to the front of a local pizzeria so he could keep his back to a wall. He needed to stop and reassess the situation that he was in, make sure that nobody could get behind him and jump him from behind. He also needed to try his best to keep his eye on that trapped colleague um, that he was there to help. Overhead, there was a police helicopter that was keeping watch and flooding the intersection with the spotlight. Sirens were piercing the air. Protesters were chanting and it was growing louder and louder. And Henshaw's nearest help was still blocks and blocks away. The crowd moved closer. The yelling got angrier and protesters hurled questions at him. They asked questions like, are you one of the good ones? How do you think we feel? One woman screamed out, you're all gas and no brakes. In other words, you're all go and no stop. Officer Henshaw tried to respond, but he was drowned out by the loud sirens. And he kept trying to say, but we do care. We do care. He was trying to reason with the crowd. He was saying, I'm sorry that you feel this way. But he could not be heard because of the anger of the crowd. This 32-year-old police officer was scared. It was only going to take one person and everyone would jump in. He just knew it. The special response team trains once a month, but he hadn't prepared Henshaw for what was in front of him. Nothing really could. If the protesters decided to attack him, there was just way too many. He thought to himself, I'm preparing to be injured. Here we go. Henshaw kept his voice calm and he radioed in, Charlie 12, this is 1030, I need help. 1030 is a code saying I'm an officer and I need somebody to come and help me. He was watching people's hands, making sure there were no weapons, looking for things to might be thrown from the protesters. But at that very moment, a man emerged from the crowd in a red University of Louisville mask covering the lower half of his face. And he put himself between the closest protesters and Officer Henshaw. The Courier Journal, the Louisville Courier Journal captured this moment in a photograph that has now been shared across the nation. You probably remember seeing this. Do any of you guys remember seeing this? This is the story behind it. Once I saw the guy with the red mask step up, Henshaw said, or pardon me, uh, one man said, he thought, I gotta step up as well. Darren Lee Jr. spotted Henshaw in the advancing crowd and he linked arms with that stranger in the red mask. Lee runs a childcare center and he said later, it was just reactive, I just went. He had no idea what would happen next. I really thought at that moment, protect him. It really isn't this man's fault. Lee was also worried that Henshaw would react and 
hid him from behind, not understanding what they were doing. So he turned and he reassured the officer, we're there to protect you. The officer was looking nervous and scared. And if he panicked, then there was going to be a war. Suddenly, the protesters turned on Lee. One man who had marched with him near the entire protest was surprised. And he said, he yelled in his face, how can you protect him? Ultimately, five men formed a human shield to protect Officer Henshaw. All of them strangers to one another. Nobody knew the name of the man to his left or to his right. Three were black, one was white, one was Dominican. All linking arms to keep harm away from Officer Henshaw, who himself is half Pakistani. Ricky McClellan, a factory worker from old Louisville, who was locked onto Lee's left arm, said, it was a human who was in trouble, and what's right is right. McClellan spotted Henshaw as he was walking around and thought, oh man, there's a problem because he's all by himself. McClellan watched the crowd around as they grew louder and larger. And he heard Lee yelling out to all those around, lock arms, lock arms. So Julian de la Cruz saw the men locking arms and he jumped in. I saw the guys link up and I saw that there was a weak spot. I saw that the man was nervous and scared and I knew that things could have gotten really bad. I believe we have a picture of de la Cruz as well. He says, This whole thing lasted about two minutes, but it felt much longer to all of those who were there. Then Henshaw's squad arrived and Lee escorted him back to his his unit and Henshaw thanked him. De La Cruz, a local businessman, said this whole moment was all about accountability. He said, if I can hold my brothers accountable and if I can march with my brothers and turn against them to say, wait, 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 this isn't right. That's where accountability comes in. And in the end, that's what we're asking for. What we need is for those great cops to hold their brothers and sisters accountable at all times. As proud as De La Cruz is of that night, he shakes his head and says it shouldn't be an extraordinary event. He said, this should be the norm. He feels that the media images of violence, vandalism, looting, misrepresent Louisville and all of the protests that's going on. What happened that night with us linking arms was just one of many heroic acts that night. He hopes that these are the moments that define Louisville. And man, wouldn't it be awesome if this was a kind of moment that defined us as a nation? That is Louisville, De La Cruz said. Louisville showed up that night. Nobody knew anybody, but we just stood up and we did that. If the officer was black, we would have done the same thing. He's somebody else's son. He's somebody else's loved one. Henshaw, Officer Henshaw, has reached out to those men through social media and through text, but he's looking forward to meeting them all and thanking them in person. And the pizzeria where it all took place said they were gonna buy the pizza when they all got back together those guys they saved me there's no doubt about it and I'm beyond thankful if it wasn't for them intervening and recognizing I was in trouble and them helping me I'm sure that I would have been assaulted in one form or another if they didn't intervene something bad was going to happen to me Inshaw continues to be moved by the moment I've cried over that incident he said it was a moment where strangers came together to help one another and help a stranger and in this instance that stranger 
was me. This all from a reprint in USA Today from the Louisville Colonel, uh, Courier Journal. Here's what I would say. Did you notice how in the midst of it all, one man stepped forward and others came to his side? And, and, and isn't it beautiful that even in the midst of a difficult and incredibly volatile thing that we are going through as a country, we realize that we might be on different sides of a protest, but we're all still people and we're all still Americans. And it was a beautiful thing to say, this is not this man's fault. And they linked arms to protect something from being tragic and from it marring the things that were trying to be said with the protest. There's just so much good about this story, but it all started really with one man who stepped forward and said, this isn't right, stay back, stay back. He was the courageous one who stood forward and stood tall and kept something that could have gotten so ugly so fast. And in doing so, he spoke to everyone who will listen. Here's what I know. If you stand before God, you know, one day, I know that you and I both want to say we did what we should have and could have done. We stood up for what was right. We helped those who needed our help. We were there to fight injustice, not to be a part of it. We weren't the silent ones that didn't respond, but instead we came to the forefront and we stood. Even when we had to stand alone, we stood tall. This is what Elijah does. And we're going to learn more about it. But this is also the challenge that he leaves for all of us to be that kind of strong in the midst of a difficult time in a difficult world. But we can't do it without God's help. He is the one who we seek first. He's the one that we know first. He is the one who gives us that strength to be that person that we desire to be. Lord, speak to us and speak to our hearts. May we be more like Elijah. Our world desperately needs people to stand forward and say, this is what is right. And I will stand by myself if I must. I will stand if it's just me and God alone, but I will stand for what is right. And I just pray that you would help us as a church to be incredibly loving and incredibly humble, but also incredibly dedicated to doing the things that are right in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. my care.
you, God, to transform us. Help us, Lord, Father, with the right thinking and, and working us in the inside, Lord, so that we may, Lord, Father, walk in a different way on the outside. Help us take the message today, Lord, and give us strength. you guys for coming today and we just want to say as we always say at the end of service we just heard God's word now let's go and live it thank you